In our Old Testament text from Isaiah, we have a wedding. It's an image that is powerful in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, Isaiah 3 is Isaiah writing to those who've come through the challenging time of the exile and have returned to Jerusalem. As Donovan talked about last week, you know, things weren't all that bad in Babylon. Um, Being there was like being in New York City now. It was uh, the queen city of the whole region. And of course, they had memories of what Zion looked like, what Jerusalem looked like, but that was before the Babylonians came and raised all the buildings, including the temple, and tore down the walls. So they go home, and what's there isn't pretty. And more importantly, they're the ones who have to do the work. So the prophet is seeing not what's before him, but is seeing what is possible, possible with God. And I think that's a way that Jesus invites us to look as well. Let's turn now to John's Gospel, the second chapter, beginning at the first verse. Hear the Word of God. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars of water for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill up the jars with water, and they filmed them to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, they did not know where it had come from, though the servants who drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an old ministerial maxim that runs... If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong at a wedding. Whether it's the recalcitrant eight-year-old ring bear refusing to walk down the aisle because the real rings aren't affixed to the satin pillow, or guests unable to arrive due to inclement weather, or the reception site booked long in advance suddenly becoming unavailable the day before the big day. Things have a tendency to go amiss in spite of the best planning. That has, of course, become especially true in these last year and months of the pandemic. You have your stories, I'm sure, 
What you may not know is that such stories are often shared at meetings of pastors. They serve as sort of a clergy icebreakers. Someone says, you wouldn't believe what happened at this wedding, and the stories start come tumbling out. Like the wedding where I had just finished the homily and, and the vows, and I turned to the best man with my hand out for the rings and was met with a blank stare. Never before or since had I seen eyes go so wide in panic. He did one of those things of patting his pockets, frantically searching before dashing down the aisles, running in search of the rings. One doesn't generally expect to have to improvise a second homily at a wedding. One can, and so one does. And finally he rushed back in and produced the rings and then proceeded to hyperventilate through the rest of the service. I I thought we were going to have to call the paramedics because of a cardiac crisis in the chancel. It's It's a minor miracle when it all turns out as it should. Some ministers will readily admit that they'd much rather do a funeral than a wedding any day. That's not true for me, but there are some, I know. A church's wedding policy booklet reads like a little bit like the laws of Leviticus. You know that they were put there because somebody actually did something that required the community's attention and approbation. In one church I served, there was a a clause in the wedding policy specifically prohibiting someone pulling a little flower girl down the aisle in a little red wagon. That seems pretty specific, doesn't it? Seriously. But you know somebody said, well, there's nothing in the policy that says we can't. To which the wedding coordinator said, oh, we'll fix that. And there it goes. Well, Jesus learned the hard truth about things going wrong when he attended the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Less than 10 miles from Nazareth, Cana was, in the words of one commentator, a nondescript barrio of a town. It was the hometown of the disciple Nathaniel, but the text doesn't provide any clues to who was getting married or why Jesus was there. Indeed, Jesus' attendance with his disciples seems almost to me like an afterthought. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. Maybe they were just happy to be passing through and got a late invite. The earliest commentators and preachers all highlight that his attendance makes it, quote, impossible for any thought of an ascetic contrast between Jesus and the natural life. In other words, Jesus is no Gnostic. He's no super spiritual beating, unconserved with the fleshly stuff of human life. His presence at the wedding affirms the joy of human love. I like that. But as the week-long festival continues, the wine gives out. What is a source of shame and embarrassment for the young couple and their families, with the whole community gathered and celebrating, sets up one of the most remarkable scenes in Scripture. Jesus' mother imploring him to fix the problem. What do you make of this story? If you were to film it, what would the interaction look like? 
Would you shoot the scene as a casual encounter or one in which the sparks are flying just a little bit? I've always read it as Mary being maybe a little too pushy, like a a stage mother cajoling or guilting her child to perform. Implicit in her statement, they have no wine, is the expectation that he could do something about it, fix the problem. Jesus' response, woman, what concern of that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Seems so short more of a retort or rebuke than anything. Is this any way to speak to your mother, Lord? Uh, On the one hand, it's helpful to see Jesus' response, the point worth considering, that being his freedom to act. God is free to act. This story is at the end of the day about God bringing heaven near to us and not humanity reaching up and pulling heaven down. This is, after all, one of the premier signs of God's grace. Jesus' actions will be governed only by the hour set by God. The timetable for that hour is determined by the cross. As Nashville native and Presbyterian New Testament professor Francis Taylor Gensch writes, the mother of Jesus appears in John's Gospel but not in association with angels and manger swaddling clothes, shepherds, or magi from the east. She's included instead in two scenes that have no parallel in the other Gospels. In John, she is present in the inaugural event of Jesus' ministry at a wedding in Cana. And she reappears at the culminating event of that ministry at the foot of the cross. These two episodes frame the story of Jesus' public ministry in John. They represent the entrance and exit points in the entire sojourn of the Word made flesh. In other words, it's helpful if we seize Mary's request here at Cana in light of her presence also in Calvary. The cross is the crooks of the gospel story as a whole and becomes the interpretive lens for every individual story throughout the entire gospel. Her simple trust communicated to the waiters to do whatever Jesus tells them to do demonstrates her faith. Her request of Jesus becomes a model of intercessory prayer for us all. We see her not so much as Jesus' mother, but a, a follower, a disciple, making her request known, pleading on behalf of others, and trusting that God will respond in God's own time and God's own way. As someone notes, in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks and acts not in response to any claims of kinship, friendship, or even need, but at his own initiative of God's will as it's revealed to him. This may seem uh, to be without compassion, but something more than compassion is involved. In the Cana story, as well as those involving his brothers and his friends, Jesus meets the need, but he does more. Compassion alone might provide wine, but sovereign grace does more. It reveals God in what is done. Jesus instructs the the six huge stone jars to be filled to the brim. There is something almost comical in the scale of this miracle. Clearly, that's part of the point. 
Jesus does not so much meet a need as supply and extravagance. It's not only the quantity, but the quality that we're called to notice. The steward took one taste and called the bridegroom over to lecture on the way things are done. What are you wasting your money for, he seems to be asking. Why are you bringing out the good stuff after folks have already become dull with drink? However, the waiter does not realize what his words mean. For for those steeped in Jewish scriptures... Both the image of a wedding feast and abundant wine are signs of the coming Messiah, the one long expected. God has done a very surprising thing. God has saved God's self up to the very best to be the last. As the author of the book of Hebrews puts it, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days... God has spoken to us by a son. The extravagance is the point of the story, and it's why this sign is an induction, introduction to Jesus' ministry in John. Jesus, in John's view, is the giver of extravagant gifts to human beings. He came that we might have life and life abundantly. From his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. Through him, We are filled to the brim. As John's story unfolds, the nature of the divine gifts that Jesus offers will be unpacked. But here at the beginning, we're given to understand that they are lavish beyond the imagining and of a quality heretofore unknown. This raises for us, I think, a challenge, one worth pondering on this particular weekend. How do we reconcile a story of God's lavish generosity with a world we live in of such staggering need? We take seriously the vision of the kingdom where all know God's abundance and shalom for following Jesus in John's gospel allows us to see things as they can be, not as they are. We work and we pray for the kingdom, never losing sight of God's vision never letting go of God's promises. Each year over the Martin Luther King weekend, I read Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail. This year I was struck again at how King keeps God's vision before him, allowing it to shape his work and inviting others to join with him. At the close of the letter, he writes the seven pastors who had accused him of being too much of a rabble-rouser in coming to Birmingham this way. I hope this finds you strong in faith. I also hope that the circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Friends, that kingdom dream is still before us. It remains unfinished and yet unattained. 
So we pray and we work because God has shown us in the abundance of Jesus' first sign the divine intention for all God's children. On this third day, Jesus turned water into wine. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And if every day is the third day, there's no telling what the risen Christ might be up to among you and me. As He comes in the wild, unpredictable grace of God, calling us to see the kingdom that's not yet here, but which He assured is God's promise for us all. Thanks be to God for such a witness. Amen.